Peaceful Parenting 4, Part 1, Theory. Peaceful Parenting. What is it? The strangest thing about peaceful parenting is that it is nothing other than what we all accept and practice in the vast majority of our daily lives. Peaceful parenting is nothing alien or foreign or revolutionary or contradictory. Peaceful parenting is exactly what you teach your children, how you live your life, what you praise and want and prefer in almost everything you do. Is this incomprehensible to you? Let's look at the larger picture, the historical picture if you like. Peaceful parenting is the greatest moral revolution in the history of the world. It is the greatest progress that can be imagined. It both falls in line with and extends all prior moral progress. What do I mean? Well, science, technology, and morality all progress when exceptions are eliminated. The more that local principles can be distilled into simple universals, the more power we gather over knowledge, nature, and ourselves. Early moral commandments forbade stealing, but only from one's own tribe. It was fine to steal from those outside your tribe, but you should respect the property of your fellow cultists. Every planet and sun is a sphere. Imagining that the Earth is flat creates an exception to a universal rule and an exception to the physical laws which cause large masses of matter to collapse into spherical shapes. In ancient societies, and even in some contemporary ones, human rights and privileges are reserved for only some people, while those in the lower castes, as well as women and slaves, remain largely unprotected. Why do we allow these complications? Why do we invent rules and then immediately start creating exceptions? Well, that is all about power. That which is complicated is almost certainly corrupt. Sometimes changing a single variable can simplify the entire system transforming it from corrupt to moral, from convoluted to correct. In the ancient world, when the Earth was considered the center of the universe, the retrograde motion of Mars, the fact that Mars seems to move backwards in the sky at times, was explained using the Ptolemaic system. This system was based on the belief that the Earth was the center of the universe and all orbits were perfect circles. Thus, in order to calculate the position of Mars, Hundreds of calculations were required. After the early Middle Ages, when astronomers began to toy with the idea that the Sun was the center of the solar system, the movement of Mars became enormously simple. The fact was that the Earth sometimes moves faster around the Sun than Mars, because the Earth is closer, which makes Mars appear to move backwards in the sky. Simple. One of Isaac Newton's greatest insights was the theory of gravity, which states that everything falls. An apple falls to the ground, the earth falls around the sun, the moon falls around the earth, and so on. Einstein also vastly simplified our understanding of the universe by rejecting the 19th century theory of ether and substituting the theory of relativity and the famous equation E equals mc squared. The extension of the rights of self-ownership and property, as well as voting rights, to all adult human beings eradicated prior moral justifications for the existence of slavery. Every human being owns himself and owns the effects of his actions. This is the foundation of political liberty and property rights. Morality, with an asterisk, 
has always been a central curse of humanity. The asterisk refers to all who are exempted from the general moral principle. Everyone has the right to enter into contracts, except women. Everyone can vote, except slaves. Only the king has freedom of speech. In some religions, only the priestly class can communicate with God. In others, everyone has access to the divine. What is the most important moral principle that desperately needs to be extended? The non-aggression principle. We all accept and enforce something called the non-aggression principle, or NAP. The non-aggression principle states that it is immoral to initiate the use of force against another human being. Self-defense is acceptable in an extremity of danger, but you cannot just walk up to someone and punch, kick, strangle, rape, or murder him or her. The non-aggression principle has been accepted throughout all of human history, but with an enormous set of asterisks that limit it in practical terms to various specific groups. Nobles can sell their own land without selling themselves, but serfs are tied to the land and bought and sold with it like cattle. Members of an in-group are allowed to strike or steal from those outside the group, but have to respect the non-aggression principle and property rights for members of their own group. So, what is peaceful parenting? <laughs> Why, it's so simple that it's almost embarrassing. Peaceful parenting simply takes the non-aggression principle and fully extends it to children. Does this sound obvious? Crazy? Redundant? I mean, we already protect our children, right? Give me a moment. Let me blow your mind. Here. The extension of the non-aggression principle to previously excluded members of society defines the moral progress of our entire species throughout history, across the world. But we seem to have a strange barrier to understanding this and thus to extending our moral and physical protections to the most helpless and vulnerable members of our society, our own children. Peaceful parenting universalizes the non-aggression principle. It is immoral to initiate the use of force against children. It is immoral to enter into contracts on behalf of children. It is immoral for individuals and societies to borrow against the collateral of children's future earnings. Are you beginning to... See, the extension of the non-aggression principle to children means that it is immoral to initiate the use of force against children, just as it is immoral to initiate the use of force against adults. As a result, it is utterly immoral to beat, hit, confine, spank, or otherwise physically abuse or restrain children. Wait, wait, I know, I know that a thousand strenuous arguments against this principle are erupting in your mind as you read, as you listen, and I truly do sympathize with that, and I will work very hard to overcome them over the course of this book. But just bear with me for a moment. Wouldn't it just be so much simpler to have one moral rule rather than one rule for adults and a complete opposite rule for children? I mean, wouldn't it be considerably less confusing for children who are being told not to hit anyone to not be hit themselves? Wouldn't it be good for authority figures to follow their own rules and not hit others? 
a certain proportion of you, about 10 to 20% by all measures, will accept that hitting children is wrong. And I thank you and appreciate you for that. However, that is only one part of peaceful parenting. The second part of peaceful parenting is to recognize that verbal abuse against children violates the non-aggression principle. Verbal abuse can take many forms from telling a child that she is stupid, lazy, selfish, mean, thoughtless, careless, clumsy, to telling her that the world is going to end soon, that she is immoral for genetic characteristics beyond her control, or that his masculinity is bad, inconvenient, and negative to the educational system. If you kidnap a woman, lock her in your basement, and then brainwash her for a year or two, you are charged with psychological abuse as well as forcible confinement. Many court cases seek damages for the infliction of emotional pain and suffering. Cult leaders who confine and indoctrinate their members are charged with grievous crimes. Children have no choice to leave their family environments and their brains are deeply shaped and formed by the words their parents use. We have laws against libel and defamation, as well as false accusations, which can result in lengthy jail terms, because we understand that words have the power to cause real-world harm. In other words, we ban physical violence and verbal abuse against adults. Why would we not also ban them against children? I understand if you reject the statements as they stand, but be patient, please. I will go into these arguments in more detail throughout the course of this book. Remember, science, technology, and morality all advance when simple, widely accepted rules are simply extended to everything and everyone. We accept that moral laws exist to protect those who cannot protect themselves. The biggest and strongest man in the village rarely has to fear physical assault. Moral laws exist to protect those who cannot protect themselves. All right? Who are the most vulnerable members of society? Come on. We all know this one. By far, the most vulnerable and helpless members of society are children. But children remain largely excluded from all the moral laws that we have developed to protect powerful, independent adults. Independent, free, and powerful adults are protected. Dependent, trapped, and helpless children are thrown to the wolves. This is no longer acceptable. It never was, but the time has come to change everything. What the world should be. Why do we find it so hard to live our values. This is not by accident. It is by design. Pretending to be virtuous in order to do evil is the oldest con of mankind. Quote, virtue was invented not to make mankind good, but rather to exploit us. You don't believe me? Good. You shouldn't believe anything I say just because I say it. Let me prove it to you. I want you to think of two warring tribes in the distant past, the Hatfields and the McCoys. One respects property rights, one does not. In the Hatfields, you can own land, machinery, make and sell weapons. Everyone can trade, allowing for specialization and the division of labor. 
As a result, the Hatfields become quite wealthy. Among the McCoys, however, property ownership is virtually impossible. Everyone steals from everyone else. No one bothers to plant crops because the crops will just be stolen. No one researches and develops weapons because they can't reliably build and sell them. It's clear that when the Hatfields and the McCoys run up against each other, that the Hatfields will always defeat the McCoys because the Hatfields have stronger warriors, superior weapons, and extra food. Thus, every tribe, nation, and group has a very strong incentive to respect property rights. When Christianity universalized the biblical commandment, Thou shalt not steal, Christianity spread worldwide by the book and the blade. Teaching a respect for property rights creates wealth. This wealth can then be taxed away by the elites and used to control the masses and expand their own power. Quote, honesty is only a virtue when you are in possession of information that those in power wish to extract from you. It is not a virtue. In fact, it is roundly punished when you tell truths inconvenient to those in charge. Then it is labeled rude or insensitive or blasphemous or heretical or seditious or hate speech. Quote, courage is generally praised because it undermines the self-preservation instincts of soldiers and other enforcement agents. Quote, courage in service of the elites is a virtue. When courage is used to oppose the elites, however, it is called terrorism and treason. If you unpack each one of these virtues, you will see that in every single instance, virtues are always the behaviors that benefit those in power. The exact same virtues are then punished if they go against the benefit of those in power. If a soldier kills an enemy of those in power, he is given medals, parades, and pensions. If he kills someone out of uniform, a tax-paying citizen, he is severely punished. Makes sense? Now, virtues such as honesty and courage are indeed good. My goal in explaining all this is not to make you cynical about morality, but rather to help you understand why it is so difficult to apply consistently. What is good for the goose is good for the gander. Moral reversals. If an action is good in one situation, but evil in another, we can call this a moral reversal. Sadly, we experience these moral reversals in our personal lives all the time, from the very start of our lives. Would you like an example? Well, our parents raised us to tell the truth. But when we told truths inconvenient to our parents, we were often punished. When your mother demanded to know who broke the lamp in the living room, she wanted you to tell the truth and praised truth-telling as a virtue. If, however, at a family dinner, you mentioned that you saw your mother kissing another man, <laughs> does she continue to praise your honesty as a virtue? Of course not. If your mother tells you to go and kiss your aunt Edna goodbye, but you loudly state that you don't want to because her breath stinks, are you praised for your honesty? No, you are punished for your rudeness. Virtues are praised when they serve those in charge. Those exact same virtues are then punished when they upset those in charge. Your school teachers probably always wanted you to tell the truth, unless you honestly told them that they were boring and incompetent, in which case you were punished for telling the truth. Those same teachers told you it was never okay to use force and threats to get what you want, but then went on strike, shutting down the entire educational system and half the economy in order to get what they want. Teachers and principals always told you to stand up to bullies and that bullying was unacceptable. But when you or your friends went to them to complain about being bullied, 
Did those teachers and principals stand up to the bullies and their volatile parents? Nope. You see, you, at the age of five or ten or fifteen, were supposed to stand up to bullies. But teachers and administrators didn't do that at all. Naturally, the virtues inflicted on you are all described as universal, without exceptions, but are never applied universally. Yet this moral reversal is never explained or even talked about. This is why we don't even notice when our society claims to love and treasure children, but then abuses and exploits them. The morality is a cover for the exploitation. If a moral philosopher, say, comes along and insists that we actually consistently live our values, accepting and enacting all the claims of universality, we feel existential horror at the concept, because throughout all of human history, attempting to live as if morals claimed to be universal were in fact universal was largely suicidal. We were, in essence, told, these morals are universal and absolute. But if you live as if they are moral and absolute, we will destroy you. We will also destroy you if you ever talk about these obvious contradictions. Again, killing against the wishes of the elite is murder. Killing with the approval of the elites will get you a chest full of medals, ticket tape parades, and a lifelong pension. We generally only feel safe when we speak nobly about our universal ethics, but then do the exact opposite when required, and never, ever notice the contradiction. Noticing this moral reversal is very humiliating, because it reveals our fundamental enslavement. The world, in other words, is hell precisely because it pretends to be heaven. What should be? Let us imagine a world where we truly lived our values of loving and treasuring our children. Imagine a world where every decision that impacted children was designed to benefit them the most. Let us begin this journey. Children care most of all about the virtues of their parents because consistently positive actions are the basis of loving bonds and emotional security, which children crave most of all. In a world devoted to the happiness of children, men and women would choose each other based on demonstrable virtues rather than shapely faces. There's nothing wrong with shapely faces. Of course, I'm not some radical idealist attempting to overthrow billions of years of evolution. Shapely faces indicate physical health. Studies have shown that more attractive people tend to have better health outcomes over time, and physical health is important. However, love is our involuntary response to virtue, if we are virtuous. And children desperately want to love their parents and respect their parents, which is only possible if the parents are consistently virtuous. It's hard to imagine a company hiring a man, paying him for months or years, and only then casually inquiring if he was in fact an engineer after all his bridges had collapsed. It's hard to imagine an employee taking a job, working for months or years, and only then inquiring about salary. No. Those in economic relationships define and negotiate mutual values up front, ahead of time. Employee credentials are checked, salaries are negotiated and contracted, mutual goals are established, contracts are signed, and only then does the economic relationship begin. That's not how 
dating works, certainly not in the modern world. Dating exists for the sake of future children, to create the most secure and positive environment for raising a family. Dating does not exist for your vanity or your mere sexual satisfaction or your pride and conquest or for thirst posting on social media. Dating exists as a mechanism for checking compatible values before embarking on creating a family. Just to put aside the inevitable nitpicking, of course, people who can't or don't want to have children can date and marry, so what? That doesn't change what dating and marriage are for. Bicyclists can use roads. That doesn't mean that the roads were created only for cyclists. In the past, dating was managed by tribal elders, and the tribe was defined by shared values, so the chances of ending up with someone with incompatible or opposing values was virtually zero. In the modern world, we are in charge of our own dating, and are often so consumed by lust and vanity that we often avoid bringing up our values for fear of torpedoing our sexual conquests. Sexual bonding is designed to cement compatible values into a permanent monogamous relationship. But we go about bonding very differently these days. Now, we have sex as a result of mere physical attraction and then steadfastly avoid talking about values. These values inevitably diverge or are revealed as divergent over time. And then we break up. Our emotional mechanisms interpret this breakup as death or disappearance, and so refuse to provide the same level of bonding the next time. As we go through half a dozen or more relationships, our bonding mechanisms cease to operate, to protect us from despair, since they interpret these constant breakups as indications of an extremely dangerous and violent environment. Throughout most of human history, the only reason you would go through six or more partners is because of war, starvation, disease, or rampant predation. Over time, we lose our capacity to pair bond, even more so for women than men, and become cold, hard-eyed, and suspicious. We are constantly paranoid, anticipating inevitable betrayal or abandonment, which makes us hard to get along with and impossible to love. Like clear plastic sticky tape, the more bonds we make and break, the less we are able to bond, until we can't really achieve it at all. In our 30s, panicking about fertility, we try to settle down and have kids, but become increasingly depressed and anxious when we fail to bond with our spouse, and also often, tragically, with our own children. If you don't bond with your children, it's really hard to enjoy parenting and really easy to slip into depression. Who we love is who we are. If we cannot love, we feel our identity slipping away. And so we dump our children in daycare and run back to work for a prefabricated identity and purpose. Things generally get even worse from there. We will talk about this in more data-driven detail later in this book. This is not how we are designed. This is not survivable. We are designed to pair bond with mutual values. Good moral values, of course, not random preferences. Countless couples have dated for years without ever discussing whether they want children or how to raise them. They have never negotiated the inevitable value divergence of two independent souls, and so are bonded emotionally and legally with no ability to navigate opposing ideas and approaches. It can't be overemphasized how insane this would be in any other relationship. Would you consider taking a job and signing a lifelong contract without ever discussing responsibilities or salary? Would you consider having a child without even thinking about what your life will look like after you become a parent? 
Would you sign up for a 40-year mortgage without any discussion of interest rates or payments? Of course not. People date for reasons of lust and enjoyment, fun and sex, utterly hijacking the purpose of dating and sexuality, which is to filter for value alignment and then emotionally pair bond with mutually compatible morals. Since dating comes before children, any society which truly valued its children would start by reforming dating. Dating is the process of looking for empirical evidence for stated value compatibility. Before going on a date, you talk about values. Once compatible values are established verbally, dating is the skeptical process of testing these claims against reality. If a man claims he wants to provide for his family, dating is the process of checking out his education, assets, income, and potential in order to verify that he can, in fact, do so. If a woman claims she wants to resolve conflicts peacefully and reasonably, dating is the process of practicing disagreement in order to establish the truth of her claim. Power tends to corrupt humanity and dating is the process of giving another person ever-escalating power over your own happiness and security. No one starts as a CEO. Employees are given progressively more responsibility to see if they can handle it productively. Dating is the process of asking and answering questions about virtue. Is the person on time? Is she thoughtful? Is he kind and courageous? Are they reliable? Does he or she consistently make my life better for being in it? Knowing the power of lust, do I enjoy this person's company in the absence of sexual opportunity? Is this person a good conversationalist? Does he or she have good social skills? How is this person around children? Does this person have a vice, such as gambling, drinking, or a bad temper? Is this person conscientious? Once emotional trust is established through empirical verification of value statements, pair bonding and sexual activity commence. Sex is the reward for value compatibility. Truly putting the cart before the horse, modern dating attempts to use sex as a reward for proximity. This leads to disaster, and disaster leads to lying. Parents who divorce, and I am including couples who never married, since if you separate after having children, that equals a divorce, are not acting in the best interests of their children. The data on this is very clear. We will discuss this in detail later. Single mothers, in particular, often claim that their children are their highest value, which is empirically false, since treating children as your highest value would mean making absolutely sure you do not get pregnant with a man who will not stick around. If a woman's partner abandons his children, there are only two possibilities. One, he was a bad man to begin with. Two, he was a good man, but she drove him away. If he was a bad man, the mother is responsible for choosing him as a father. If he was a good man, the mother is responsible for driving him away. In either outcome, what is best for her children is empirically not her highest priority. Thus, if society wishes to even begin living up to its values of placing children first and loving and treasuring the next generation, it will start by reforming dating to align the process of pair bonding with the best and safest outcomes for children. Marriage, welfare, and divorce laws would change to promote stable and permanent marriages since children are by far the safest and most secure in the protection of a stable marriage. After conception, what is best for children? 
Hair bonding with the mother is best for children. Breastfeeding is best for children. For the first five years at least, a stay-at-home mother is best for children. If we want to genuinely live up to our values of loving and nurturing children, women would stay home with their babies, love them, and breastfeed them. Of course, women who stay home with their babies don't work in the economy or pay taxes, so this lowers gross domestic product and general economic activity, not to mention lowering tax receipts. However, stay-at-home mothers also raise the wages of men by not competing with them. If we were hyper-focused on economic activity, GDP, and taxable income, we would encourage women to abandon their babies to daycare. This also creates additional tax receipts and economic activity from the daycare workers, as well as giving governments enormous power over early childhood. Do we value our children or lust for political power and money-making? Do we want happy babies or short-term higher bars on economic charts? Of course, very few women make enough money to pay for taxes, expenses, and daycare and have much left over. The most tragic fact is that women are not abandoning their children for wealth, but for a pittance or even a net loss. The average mother makes only a few dollars an hour after expenses. If we cared about our children, this would almost never happen. Do we care about our children? Well, as mentioned above, this is a value statement which needs to be verified. Verification is easy. We simply ask, what is best for children? Then we see if society is doing that. If society is not doing that, as it is empirically not at present, then that is either because society does not want to do what is best for children, or does not know what is best for children. If society claims that it wants to do what is best for children, but empirically does not do what is best for children, it is essential to point out this hypocrisy. If society claims that it wants to do what is best for children, but never examines what is in fact best for children, it is essential to point out this hypocrisy. If I claim that I want to lose weight, but steadfastly avoid learning anything about weight loss, and get very angry at people who try to instruct me, it is safe to assume that I do not, in fact, want to lose weight. The purpose of pointing out this hypocrisy is not to shame or change the hypocrites, but rather to prevent everyone from wasting their time trying to reform the hypocrites. Open hypocrisy is a confession that no change is intended. If my friend claims that he wants to lose weight but keeps gaining weight, and I point out that he is eating too much and avoiding exercise, and he yells at me and storms out, then it is clear that I should not waste any more time trying to help him. My friend has no intention of actually losing weight. He just talks about it to feel better in some way or to trap me in the same nihilistic frustration that he feels. If a woman claims that she wants a stable, moral man, but keeps dating alcoholic losers, a good friend will point out this contradiction to her. If she ends up yelling at her friend and attacking him, it would be irrational for him to waste any more time trying to instruct her. Of course, some people will change for the better when their hypocrisy is pointed out. This is wonderful and worthy of further investment. This tends to be the exception, however. Look, we all do wrong from time to time. The wrongs we do tend to be recoverable when we can admit our fault, make restitution, and work hard to prevent recurrence. If a man cannot admit fault, he cannot prevent recurrence. He will never make restitution any more than you would happily pay a bill you never incurred. If restitution has become impossible, fault will almost never be admitted.
if you hit someone's car, you can pay for the damage and repair the car. If you hit someone's car and kill his wife, restitution is impossible. If a parent snaps at a child, the parent can apologize, make restitution, and work on anger management to ensure it does not happen again. If a parent violently abuses a child for 15 years straight, no restitution is possible because the child can never be made whole again. Restitution occurs when emotions become neutral. If someone dings your car, pays to repair it, and throws in a few hundred dollars for your time, he has paid reasonable restitution. If you had a terrible childhood, what would it take for you to be okay with what happened? To put it another way, when we work for pay, we do things we probably wouldn't do without being paid. If we take a job for $20 an hour, we know ahead of time that we will sacrifice an hour doing what someone else wants in return for the $20. The restitution paid for us doing what our boss wants is $20 an hour. But things are very, very different with childhood. To deeply understand why, try this. Imagine you are floating above the world before you are born, a potential soul in orbit. Now imagine that a screen pops up and shows you your life from before you are born to about the age of 18. You don't know what happens after that. You only know what happens over the course of your childhood. You are then asked if you wish to take the gift of life. If the childhood you see is full of abuse and tension and stress and terror, would you take this supposed gift? How much would you have to be offered to accept being born if being born meant that you would be abused for almost 20 years straight? If you take an unpleasant job for $20 an hour, you are agreeing ahead of time to do something you don't really want to do in return for the $20. If you had a bad childhood and were given the choice before being born of whether to accept the gift of life or not, what would you choose? If you would not choose to live, knowing ahead of time that you would be subjected to 18 years of abuse, then clearly no restitution is possible. Your abusers can never make it right. They are unforgivable. If you find the above analogy too mystical for your tastes, we can always apply it to your present life instead. If someone knocked on your door today, interrupting this essential listening, of course, and made you the following offer, would you accept? Hello there. How much would I have to pay you in order to surrender yourself to someone else's control and be abused for the next 18 years? I can't think that any sane person would name any amount. In fact, most people pay taxes and obey the law so they don't get thrown in jail where they will doubtless be abused for months years or decades. Since there is no amount of money that you would take to surrender to somebody else's control and abuse for the next 18 years, and you had an abusive childhood, then you can never receive restitution for your tragic and violent history. A person who refuses to apologize and make restitution cannot be forgiven since forgiveness is earned, not granted. In the same way, no one can be forgiven whose wrongdoing is beyond restitution. Earlier, I talked about how virtues that served those in power were praised, while the exact same virtues that harmed the interest of those in power were condemned. Well, 
forgiveness follows exactly the same pattern. As a child, if you made a mistake and were punished, then clearly you were not forgiven. Punishment was the ideal, not forgiveness. On the other hand, when you grow up and confront your parents for any of the wrongs they did to you, ah, how things abruptly reverse. Now, suddenly, forgiveness is the ideal, not punishment. Do you remember if you failed to study for a test as a child that you were not forgiven but rather punished? You received a failing grade and were probably yelled at, spanked, or confined to your room. This happens to billions of children when they are seven, eight, or nine years of age. Parents will very often get angry at children who come to them at the last minute saying that there is some school project that they need parental time and resources to finish. Perhaps it is practice for a spelling bee, or materials for a science project, or a stack of permission slips to be signed. We all know what parents say. You've known that this has been coming for weeks. Why are you bringing it to me now? To extract the principle, which is the job of philosophy, of course, we would say that the essence of their criticism is this. Failing to prepare for known deadlines is a punishable offense. So, parents get angry when children fail to prepare ahead of time for known deadlines. They punish those children. It is part of the moral madness of society, not just our own, of course, but all across the world, all throughout history, that we hold children to infinitely higher moral standards than adults. <laughs> Actually, it's far worse than that. Refusing to forgive children for their lack of preparation is a virtue. Refusing to forgive adults for their lack of preparation is a stone evil vice deserving of condemnation and ostracism. Do you see? Punishing children for failing to prepare is good. Punishing adults for failing to prepare is evil. You think I exaggerate? Deep down, you know that I do not. From the time when people first learn how babies are made, to the time that they actually make a baby, parents have years to learn how to parent best. Except in fundamentalist circles, most parenting books written since the end of the Second World War, almost three generations by now, have discouraged hitting children. Most parenting books Discourage yelling at children, calling children abusive names, and encourage parents to reason positively with their children, and spend lots of time with their children so that the children feel loved and treasured. Parents have many, many years to study best practices in parenting before having children. Good question. Which do you think is more important? A grade 7 spelling bee? or peaceful and healthy parenting practices? Is it more important to be adequately prepared for a science project when you are 11 years old, or to research whether violence and aggression should be used against your own helpless and dependent children? You see how this goes? Who should be held more morally accountable? A child whose brain is still a decade or more away from final maturity, or a fully grown adult. At the moment, society fully believes that 40-year-old adults should never be punished for their failures to prepare for the most important test of life, parenting, while an 8-year-old child should be punished for failing to prepare for an inconsequential make-work school quiz. Parents who fail to crack a book about parenting? Well, they should never be punished for any of their inevitable failings. A nine-year-old girl who forgets about an upcoming quiz? Well, she gets an F. 
A child who fails to prepare for an inconsequential test must be punished. And parents who fail to punish are negligent, prone to producing entitled brats to the detriment of society as a whole. However, parents who failed to prepare for parenting, the most important moral task of mankind, must never be punished, but rather eternally forgiven. It's one thing for parents to demand forgiveness for their failure to prepare. It's quite another thing for parents who regularly punished little children for their failure to prepare for inconsequential tasks to later aggressively demand forgiveness for their own failures to prepare for their most important task, moral parenting. If a child fails to prepare for a test and does very badly, does that child get to use the excuse, well, you can't get too mad at me because I did the best I could with the knowledge I had? No, of course not. If a man who can't drive steals a car, then crashes it into a schoolyard, does he get to escape punishment by saying, hey, I did the best I could with the knowledge I had at the time? He does not. The child who fails is told that it was his responsibility to get the knowledge before the test. And if he failed to get that knowledge, he cannot claim his lack of knowledge as an excuse for failing. We are all constantly told ignorance of the law is no excuse. Yet parents who never learned anything about good parenting practices constantly claim that they did the best they could with the knowledge they had. Tax systems are notoriously complicated, but failure to follow all of the myriad and complex laws is no excuse. You get punished, fined, and prosecuted anyway. Do you see it now? Children are subjected to the very highest moral standards in society. But when parents are subjected to those same moral standards, the same standards they inflicted on their children, they are outraged. If an adult victim of child abuse says to his parents, you yelled at me, hit me, called me names, that was really bad. Why didn't you read any books about parenting or consult any experts or go to therapy before becoming a parent? Why were you so unprepared? First of all, naturally, the parents will deny, minimize, and gaslight. But if these strategies fail, the parents will fall back on the aggressive demand for forgiveness by saying that parenting is really hard, that they did the best they could, and that their own childhoods were bad, and it was hard for them to be good parents. Again, philosophically, we have to extract the core moral principles from these excuses to see if they can be applied universally or are accepted at all, if so applied. Parenting is really hard. Okay, is it acceptable for a child to fail a math test because, according to the child, math is really hard? No, of course not. The child will be told that he has to work even harder because math doesn't come quite as easily. We did the best we could with the knowledge we had. Okay, so is it acceptable for a child who fails a test to say that he did the best he could with the knowledge he had? No, of course not. The child will be told that he was responsible for failing to study the necessary facts in preparation for the test. I had a bad childhood, so it was tougher for me to be a good parent. Okay. Is it acceptable for a child who fails a math test to say that he has always found math tough and he had a bad teacher when he was younger, so clearly it's fine for him to fail the test? Of course not. If a parent tries to help his child study for a math test and then the child fails that math test, is it an acceptable excuse for the child to say that the parent was a bad tutor? No, of course not. Parents will say, well, if you know that you're not great at math, then you need to study extra hard to make up for that. Being bad at something is no excuse for not studying. In fact, you're even more responsible for failing to study since you knew ahead of time that you were bad at the subject. You see how this goes? If a child says that he failed the test because it's too hard for him to study when he has his phone in his room because the phone is too distracting, what do his parents reply? 
Come on. If you knew ahead of time that having your phone in your room made studying too difficult, then clearly you should have not kept your phone in your room. If you know about a problem ahead of time, you're all the more responsible for fixing the effects of that problem. If you know that you burn easily, you're all the more responsible for putting on sunscreen. You can't say, well, I got a really bad sunburn because I know that I burn easily and I didn't put on any sunscreen. So, this is the principle. If you know ahead of time about a particular weakness, you are even more responsible for working even harder to achieve your goal. If a child claims that he's going to watch a movie and study for his math test at the same time, no one will believe that is possible. It's clear that you cannot study for a math test while also watching a movie, so when he fails the math test, the boy cannot claim that his knowledge was deficient because he was watching a movie while trying to study. What will his parents say? We all know. Well, if you know that you can't study while watching a movie, you're responsible for failing the test. If a mother knows that she had a bad childhood and that this will negatively affect her parenting, then she is fully responsible for overcoming her problems. If a man knows that every time he hangs out with a particular friend he gets falling down drunk, then choosing to hang out with that friend is also choosing to get falling down drunk. He can't say, well, I'm not responsible for getting falling down drunk because I was hanging out with my friend. If a man compulsively gambles every time he goes to a casino, then he can't claim that he had no choice to gamble because he was at the casino. If we know cause and effect, then we cannot claim to have no responsibility for the effect. If a boy knows that he is too distracted by his phone to study effectively, then he is responsible for failing to study effectively because he decides to keep his phone in his room. If we held parents to the same standards that they hold their children to, peaceful parenting would have already been achieved. However, as usual, it's even worse than that. Children and control. In our society, children are not only punished for actions which adults demand forgiveness for, children are punished for things entirely beyond their control. Imagine two children, Bob and Sally. Sally has wonderful, educated parents who encourage reading, discuss books with her, and make sure that the house she lives in is conducive to reading, studying, and writing. Bob, on the other hand, lives in a house of violence and chaos. His parents don't read and mock him for opening a book. Drunken parties constantly interrupt him and prevent him from getting a good night's sleep. Sally and Bob are both judged by the same standards on tests. Bob will often fail, while Sally will get straight A's. Obviously, Bob is not responsible for his family situation, but he is still punished for it. Sally did not earn her good fortune, but is constantly rewarded for it. Children who get good food are judged by the same standards as children who are fed junk food on a daily basis. By doing this, we are saying to the children, you will be rewarded and punished for things utterly beyond your control. This same society will utterly condemn adult children who criticize abusive parents. Parents are in control of the household, but must never be punished for their bad choices. Children have no control over the household, but must always be punished for their parents' bad choices. Parents must never be punished for what they themselves choose, but helpless children must always be punished for what their parents choose. Are you beginning to truly see what I mean about the deeply insane moral reversals in our society? 
Are you beginning to understand the deep, widespread, and systematic, and institutional bigotry of childism?